Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Asher Honickman, who's a partner at the law firm Jordan Honickman and co-founder of two legal societies, Advocates for the Rule of Law, which has intervened several times before the Supreme Court in Canada, and the Runnymede Society, which has established chapters in law schools across the country. I'm grateful to speak to him about various constitutional and judicial topics at a time when a series of Supreme Court decisions in the United States has elevated attention and focus on the courts. Asher. Thank you for joining me at Hub Dialogues. John, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Hub, and it's a, it's a real honor to be here. Let's start with a biographical question. You have a law practice where you spend a lot of time on public questions about political parties, our political system, and the jurisdiction of the courts. What is drawing you to these types of questions, and how did you get started in them? My practice is is fairly diverse. I, I I'm actually you know my day job is mostly things like defamation, employment law, breach of contract, etc. But I I do try and get involved in what we call public interest litigation, and and I've been doing that I, I guess for about five years or so now. I think the first big case I had was the Statement of Principles case back in 2017, 2018, and and the reason I do it is because. I just find it so interesting. I've always had a bit of a passion for the, you can say, the, the philosophical aspects of law, constitutional law and public law, especially. So I, I, I've just always wanted to make sure that part of my practice uh, has those elements. As I mentioned, you've been a bit of institution builder with the Advocates for the Rule of Law and the Running Meat Society. Let me ask you a two-part question. First, why do you think it was important to establish these organizations? And second, What's their purpose and mandate? For advocates for the rule of law, I mean, we're going back to sort of 2013, 2014. And what I recall is that I and a few other lawyers were seeing in certain cases, what I would say a lack of a principled approach being taken, you know, whether this was constitutional law or even something like insurance law, where we were sometimes seeing a results-oriented approach as opposed to what you may call a, a rules-based approach or principled approach. And so uh, a few of us got together and we made this group Advocates for the Rule of Law, where we wanted to really uh, explain to other members of the bar and other engaged members of the public really what the rule of law is and, and how important it was. And uh, the Running Meat Society was, was similar. It flowed from that, but it was more geared at law schools, where um, I and, and Marnie Sukhoff and then Joanna Barron came together and, and we decided, we, you know, we need to have a group that's, that's going to be in law schools, that's going to be talking about how important the rule of law is, 
how important concepts like constitutionalism, individual liberty, fundamental freedoms, these things are. And, and we need to start having conversations that maybe aren't happening in other major law organizations. We, we need to uh, not be afraid to have conversations about things like originalism, which I, I know you want to get into a bit later on. And so advocates for the rule of law has been something that I've stayed much more involved in day to day. Runnymede is a much larger organization that I've had a lot less involvement in day to day. Once it started, Joanna Barron took the reins and did a fantastic job with it and then handed the torch to Mark Mancini and now to Chris Kinsinger. And all of them have have done a fantastic job leading that group. Each of them has brought uh, something unique to the group and, re- and really added to it. And now, and now the Running Meat Society is extremely prolific across Canada. And I can take very, very little credit for it, except, you know, staying involved at a, at a nominal level and being there at the founding, as it were. Listeners will recognize some of the names that Asher cites. These are people who've contributed at the Hub over the past uh, several months, and, and we're grateful to have them involved and, and to profile the work of members of the Running Me Society, who, as Asher says, oftentimes are law students at different law schools across the country. As you said, Asher, we'll come back to some of um, these philosophical questions like originalism later in the conversation. But let me pick up on some of your own legal writing and scholarship. You've been cited previously in a Supreme Court decision that in particular referred to your idea of a version of federalism that you describe as, quote, watertight compartments. Um, What do you mean by watertight compartments? How does it compare to the type of federalism that currently prevails? And why do you think your approach would be better? Right. So that that phrase, I've perhaps brought it back into the lexicon, into the legal discourse, as it were, but it's definitely not my phrase. It comes from a 1937 decision of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, Lord Atkin. And what it uh, conceptualizes is a version of federalism where each order of government, meaning parliament on the one side and the provincial legislatures on the other, each order stays within its sphere, that there's not significant overlap between the provinces and parliament. And uh, that case, that 1937 case, it's a very famous case that it comes from. It's called the Labor Conventions case. And that case dealt with federal New Deal legislation. And a a lot of Canadians don't know this. Uh, We we know about the U.S. Supreme Court and how the U.S. Supreme Court struck down uh, various New Deal laws. What we don't know is that the, or what many don't know is that the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which was Canada's highest court of appeal until 1949, uh, struck down a number of New Deal, uh, Canadian New Deal laws that came from Parliament. And like anything that is Canadian, it was it was a more moderate and muted version of what happened in the U.S. So it wasn't like every law was getting struck down, but there were three in particular that got struck down. And in, and in one of these cases, Lord Atkin, you know, gave this very famous speech where, or not speech, but he, but he had this famous turn of phrase where he said, well, the ship of state now sails on larger ventures and into foreign waters. She still retains the watertight compartments, which are an essential part of her original structure. So there, there's important elements there to unpack. And, and what he's saying there. And again, this will get into this concept of of originalism that we're going to talk about. What he's saying is that even though the Canadian state in 1937 is much different 
than it was in 1867. The fundamental nature of Canadian federalism that our fathers of Confederation agreed to remains the same. And that is a version of federalism that has these watertight compartments. Now, that doesn't mean no overlap whatsoever. And I've written an article that talks about when overlap can be permitted, but it's much different than what we've seen over the last generation from the Supreme Court, which is what's known as cooperative federalism or flexible federalism. And this is the idea that we want to just let each order of government basically do what they want to do. We want to almost encourage overlap. And unless there's something really egregious, we don't want to interfere and say, no, you can't do that. And, and that's that's definitely a change in course from from what prevailed for, I would say, the majority of Canadian history. Even now, we it, it, it's not the, the only approach. We still see what, what we call this classical federalism. We still see that approach in certain cases, and we see it in the dissent of certain cases. You know, the, the greenhouse gas reference comes to mind, certainly, where that was, you know, the, the dissent there was really pushing a more classical version of federalism, and the majority had this you know, much more uh, modern cooperative federalism. But overall, I would say the classical federalism approach is better because it, first and foremost, it's the approach that, in my view, is constitutionally grounded. It is the approach that is grounded in the text of the Constitution, which makes it very clear that these powers are exclusive, that they're not meant to overlap. And and that's what I, I discuss at length in my Watertight Compartments article. I also uh, happen to be of the view that it, it's the approach to federalism that is most consistent with an enduring constitutional order. I, I believe that when you have too much overlap, you don't get cooperation. You get conflict, actually. And what's interesting is that in these 1930s cases, the Privy Council actually suggests that it's through the watertight compartments that real cooperation occurs because the orders of government must cooperate with each other. When there's overlap, what you actually get, in, in my respectful view, is domination by parliament. Because if parliament can, can legislate into any area, then it can basically run the whole show and then say, well, you know, we're basically going to do what we want. And you can, you provinces can legislate as well. But if there's a conflict between what you want to do and what we want to do, Paramountcy means that we win, so so actually it's it's our way or the highway. So I would push back against this whole notion that overlap means cooperative federalism, as the uh, Supreme Court have, has said. I think you can actually get a much more conflicting federalism. So I would like to see a return to at least some version of this watertight uh, compartments philosophy to federalism. You're making a principally a constitutional or legal argument in favor for that conception of federalism. I think there's also a highly practical one. We're having this conversation against a backdrop of long passport delays, and one can't help but think that if we had a federal government more focused on its knitting and less on the the day-to-day responsibilities of provinces, we might actually have better federal services. Uh, But that's for another conversation. In another article, Asher, you talk about an expansive interpretation of Section 7 of the Charter, which for listeners refers to the quote that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the security of the person, and the right not to be deprived thereof, except in accordance with principles of fundamental justice. 
unquote, uh, from a, a narrow lens of what's referred to as procedural due process to today's prevailing view about substantive due process. Um, listeners may have recently heard these terms in U.S. Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion in the Dobbs decision with respect to abortion rights. What is the difference between these two forms of due process, and how has the Canadian Supreme Court effectively redesigned Section 7, and in so doing, changed its um, purpose and use? Right. Well, I mean, that's a great question, and it's a, it's a complicated one. So some people, and, and I believe Justice Thomas would be one of these people, and Justice Scalia certainly was one who said that uh, substantive due process is like an oxymoron, because due process is, is inherently talking about procedural rights. Um, but the U.S. Supreme Court decades ago went down the road of uh, creating this idea of substantive due process, meaning that there's not only procedural rights that one is entitled to if their life or liberty is going to be taken away, but there's substantive rights, meaning that there are some rights for which no process would suffice. So the, the traditional idea of process is that you can take someone's life or liberty away, but you have to give them essentially a fair trial if, if you're going to do that. A uh, substantive due process would say, no, there's, there's more for certain types of, of, of liberties, there's more than just a fair trial that you have to give someone. There are certain processes that will never suffice and thus you can never take away those liberties. So when the, when the charter was being drafted and designed in the early 80s, that concept of substantive due process had already been popularized in the United States. And for that reason, our framers did not use the term due process in Section 7. They used the term principles of fundamental justice. And uh, in my view and in the view of many others, the record is clear. The reason they use principles of fundamental justice is specifically because due process had been interpreted broadly that way. And and our framers wanted to avoid a situation where our Section 7, which is similar to the U.S. 14th Amendment in that it, it broadly guarantees liberty and also security of the person in the case of Section 7, they wanted to be sure that it would not be interpreted so broadly, that it would be confined to more procedural issues. And part of the problem was that the term principles of fundamental justice was not uh, a popular term in, in Canadian society. It wasn't one that had a, what we would call, you know, an ordinary meaning. It was taken from the Canadian Bill of Rights, which also used that term. And in the Canadian Bill of Rights, Section 2E, Principles of Fundamental Justice is used in an expressly procedural sense. And so my, my take on the historical record is that our framers use that term because they said, well, it comes from a document in which it is expressly understood to be procedural, and the Supreme Court had interpreted it back in the early 70s to mean that it was a procedural guarantee only. So it's a safe bet to use principles of fundamental justice in the charter because in law that has a narrower procedural meaning. So from 1982 to 1985, Lower courts are interpreting this term principles of fundamental justice, and they're saying, yep, this comes from the Canadian Bill of Rights. It, it means you, you have procedural guarantees. Section 7 appears under the heading legal rights. All the other sections dealing with legal rights basically have to do with rights of the accused. You know, Section 8 uh, talks about reasonable search and seizure. Section 11 talks about 
the, the rights to a fair trial specifically. So really, Section 7 is, is talking about the same kinds of things. It's your rights against the state when, when you're being arrested, charged, prosecuted, etc. It's kind of like the equivalent of habeas corpus rights. Is that not the right way to think about it? Yeah, I mean, th- th- that. so someone would say, well, that's w- that would be one of the principles of fundamental justice. You know, so th- the idea was that, well, maybe it's not narrow in what it means, but it, it generally refers to this procedural right that, or procedural rights that occur within the criminal law context. And most of the lower court decisions, either trial courts or, or intermediate appeal courts, between 1982 and 1985, give it this meaning. Then the Supreme Court comes along in 1985 in a case called uh, the BC Motor Vehicles Reference, and they do two things. They, they bring in the concept of the living tree that we'll talk about, and they use that living tree to say that the principles of fundamental justice cannot just have this narrow procedural meaning, it has to have a substantive meaning too. And, and in that case, the what the law dealt with was absolute liability offenses, meaning that you don't have to intend to break the law, or, or rather you don't have to uh, have a mens rea intent, you don't have to have a, a guilty mind, as we say, and you can still be found guilty of this, this offense. And it, it, it had to do with driving offenses and, and, and going to jail for those offenses. And so what the Supreme Court said was that, well, you can't go, you can't have absolute liability offenses where there's a potential imprisonment that breaches the principles of fundamental justice. So that's a substantive right. That's not just a procedural right. Now, in BC motor vehicle references, you still had a very legal criminal kind of issue. You know, the, the, the issue is, can you have an offense that has an absolute liability requirement that can also send someone to prison? And so at least there you can say, well, it's substantive, but it's very tied into the criminal process and, and what, what mens rea element you need to have. But that case establishes a precedent, which then later courts use, especially in the last 10 years, to really expand the ambit of Section 7 and what principles of fundamental justice mean. And so cases about prostitution, uh, about assisted dying, about uh, various rights come under the ambit now of Section 7, which no longer has this narrower procedural requirement or even the slightly wider requirement that you get in BC Motor Vehicles. It now it now has a much wider um, meaning where laws that are that are overbroad or grossly disproportionate can be struck down because they offend the principles of, of fundamental justice. Who decides if a law is overbroad? Who decides if it's grossly disproportionate? A court decides that. Uh, so in practice, you're giving a lot of power to courts to decide what laws unduly infringe liberty or security of the person. The reason why this subject, though, complex is so important because, uh, as I understand it, Ash, or as you say, well, the original intent uh, was for this section to be narrowly focused on issues of procedural due process. Through jurisprudence, the, the section was essentially transformed into a provision that enables considerations around substantive due process, and in so doing, has now formed the basis for a series of judicial decisions over the past quarter century or so to establish new rights that probably weren't considered and, in fact, may have even been outright rejected in the original drafting of the the Canadian Charter. 
of rights and freedoms, which it seems to me begs the question, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is, is 40 years old this year. That means that many of those involved in its creation are, are still alive. Why do you think the Canadian judiciary has been so dismissive of concerning itself with the original thinking and, and intent behind different parts of the Charter, notwithstanding that it's still relatively young compared to other constitutions around the world? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great question. So uh, on the one hand, the court has has been expressly dismissive of it in, in various cases where they say, you know, we have the living tree here, we don't look at original intent. But on the other, as um, as scholars like Leonid Sirota have, have demonstrated, the court actually does do originalism in practice in various cases where even though they say they don't care about it, they do look at what the uh, original understanding of provisions of the Constitution were, which can, which can include the Charter. You know, I'd be speculating in terms of why the court has tended to prefer the living tree. I think one reason, candidly, is because at the same time that our charter was was beginning to be interpreted, the U.S. was starting to embrace uh, or re-embrace originalism. And so, like anything else, it's a way to distinguish Canada from, from the United States. Uh, but I, I don't know that that's a sufficient explanation. I, I think that in, in a fundamental sense, we had judges both early on and, and since who have, I think in good faith, taken the view that rights cannot be uh, limited to their original understanding. And again, you, you know, it's 40 years now, but it, at the time of BC Motor Vehicles, it was three years. And, and the court still put forward the living tree. You know, nothing had changed from 1982 to 1985. I don't, I don't see any reason to start talking about a living tree in 1985, yet the living tree gets talked about heavily in, in the 1980s. But even the living tree approach itself, and I've, I've written about this, the living tree approach itself has changed, where in the 1980s, you do get a sense that the living tree is limited by what the, by what the analogy refers to as the natural limits of growth. And so they say, yes, our constitution is a living tree, and that, that means we need to interpret things broadly, but we need to still look at, at historical purposes of rights, etc. And, and when you, as soon as you talk about historical purposes, you're, you're really talking about original intent in certain ways. And so in BC Motor Vehicles, for example, again, even though they talk about living tree, even though they expand beyond purely procedural rights, they still talk about the quote-unquote basic tenets of the legal system. You know, they, they talk about things that are so inextricably tied to our legal system that they have to form principles of fundamental justice. So these aren't things we're inventing today. These are things that have existed since time immemorial. And again, in that case, the, the court's saying it has always been the case that if you're going to send someone to prison, they, they have to have a mens rea requirement. You can't say that someone can go to prison, you know, for, for going through a red light, even though they didn't. They didn't understand, you know, they, they didn't intend to go through the red light or they didn't want to go through the red light. You have to have the guilty mind to send someone to prison. That has always been the case. Whereas modern principles of fundamental justice are principles that may not have existed in 1982. This idea that a law cannot be overbroad. You know, one can argue that all laws are either somewhat overbroad or, uh, you know, somewhat undershoot their purpose, that it is the rare case where a law perfectly 
captures its purpose. You know, the, these ideas of gross disproportionality, these are ideas that courts have, have essentially come up with. They have decided these are now, now principles of fundamental justice. So the very idea of the living tree, which was once at least grounded to natural limits, seems to have uh, itself taken on a living tree component, where the living tree now no longer has natural limits, and, and it really is up to the court to, to decide what those basic values of society are. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You've used the language of living tree and originalism a, a couple of times. Help me and, and listeners understand the difference between an originalist judicial philosophy and the living tree model. Right. So, I mean, both terms, as I think is already clear, but I'll, I'll make this clear, both terms refer to very broad schools of thought that have a great deal of disagreement within them. So originalism, especially in the United States, but now in Canada as well, have, have many different kinds of adherence. There's people who say, you know, you look at original intent. So what did the framers actually intend? You have other people who say, absolutely, 100%, never look at intent, look at, at language. What did language mean? Uh, you know, I would be someone who, who would say, you look at the language, but in interpreting the language, it's sometimes helpful to look at what what was intended, what people thought things meant at the time. Originalism, in a sense, is a very Canadian thing. You know, I, I was talking at the beginning about the 1937 Labour Conventions case. There's no doubt that that's an originalist case. There was no philosophy at the time called originalism. But there's no doubt if, if you read the division of powers cases from the late 19th century and well into the 20th century, that the Privy Council and Supreme Court were interested in what these terms meant in 1867. And there's very little indication that, though, that the meaning of those terms evolves. Uh, there's certain cases where the courts take a broad approach, certainly, but uh, even the case where the, the term living tree comes from, uh, I and many others, uh, including Justice Bradley Miller of the Ontario Court of Appeal, have, have argued in various papers, and I think now shown definitively, that the Privy Council, when it first said living tree, was not saying that the meaning of terms change over time. That's a meaning that got attached to that case decades after the fact. So I, I would argue that originalism in, in, a, in a textual sense is very Canadian. This idea that a statute means the same thing that it's always meant, that is still the rule in Canada for, for non-constitutional statutes. We still say a statute means what it meant the day after it was passed. Uh, why do we say that? Because at the time it was passed, th that's what we're interested in. We're interested in knowing what did its framers, what did, what did Parliament intend by those words? If, if we change what the words mean over time, then we're changing parliamentary intent. And so in, in the realm of ordinary statutes, that's actually non-controversial. It's only changed in the realm of constitutional statutes 
where we previously did the originalist approach and now we do the living tree approach. And again, the living tree approach is one that ironically, I, I would argue, comes from the United States, comes from the sort of early 20th century and into the mid century, uh, mid 20th century United States, where, you know, these new schools of thought were emerging that were saying the Constitution needs to needs to keep a pace with the realities of modern life. And that's something that that takes hold in the United States and that Canadian uh, academics and scholars and, and eventually judges then seize on to beginning in the 1970s in Canada and then really in the 1980s, 90s and, and into the 2000s. But it really is a, a philosophy that, that I would argue originates in the United States. And so my view on originalism is not that we should be adopting, you know, an American philosophy uh, and theory that is really being um expounded over the last few decades in the United States, my view has always been that we should take a look at our own history and traditions. We have our own version of originalism here, a, a, you know, a more British maybe version of originalism that is doesn't have this firebrand idea of, you know, what did, what did Thomas Jefferson want? What did James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, these great men, what, what did they, what did they want and, and, and what did they desire for society? But it's this much more um, dry, positivist uh, approach to text and saying, what did this text mean at the time? You know, like, what did banks mean in 1867? What did criminal law mean in 1867? And by the same token, what did freedom of expression mean in 1982? And, and of course, that doesn't mean that, you know, because the internet wasn't around in 1982, that expression doesn't include the internet. It doesn't mean that because credit cards weren't around in 1867, that you know, banks can't sell credit cards or, or, or give out credit cards. It, it doesn't mean those things. But what you what, what it does mean is that you look at some uh, general meaning of that term. And that's the term. That's the meaning rather that that applies going forward. So if if something like freedom of association in Section 2D of the Charter, if that means, you know, an individual right to associate not as opposed to a collective right for the association itself to have rights, to collectively bargain, to strike, etc. Then that's what it means. Our our court, our Supreme Court, has reinterpreted freedom of association away from its original meaning. It has said that, you know, this is not just an individual negative right to form associations. It is it is a group right. It is a right to have your association, it is a right for the association to ha- itself have rights to collectively bargain, to strike, etc. Section 7 has moved away from its original meaning, uh, as we've discussed. No longer just a procedural right and no longer even confined to what the principles of fundamental justice were at the time of the Charter, but rather new principles of fundamental justice can now be read into Section 7. That is a fundamentally uh, living tree, non-originalist type of interpretation. Really thoughtful answer, Asher, and your point about the Canadian tradition is well taken. Is it right to say now, though, that the living tree approach is dominant in Canadian law schools and the judiciary? And if so, why? What has stood in the way of an original school of scholars and practitioners in Canada compared to, say, the United States? I, I would say it's dominant. I would say it's less dominant than it was five years ago. And I believe that groups like the Running Meat Society have had a big hand in that because we've actually started debating that issue. I think five years ago, 
it was taken as as just pure orthodoxy. It was just a given that our constitution is a living tree, and that's something that distinguishes us from other countries, notably the United States. Part of the problem is that originalism is now associated specifically with conservative political outcomes. And, and a lot of what I've tried to, to show and what other scholars have tried to show is that originalism, especially in the context of, a Canadian, of the Canadian Charter, which was passed by a majority liberal government at the time, you know, that, that, that was the government in power at the time, uh, a liberal government. We, we've tried to show that the Canadian Charter is by no means a conservative document in its original meaning, that in fact, one can also argue that living tree approaches with the Canadian Charter could go off in conservative directions. So for example, in Canada, unlike the United States, there's no right to bear arms. A living tree proponent could say, well, you know, we need a right to bear arms in Canada. And so liberty in Section 7 is now going to be read expansively to include the right to bear arms and the principle of one of the principles of fundamental justice that I'm now going to say is a principle of fundamental justice is self-defense. You know, the, the idea that every, you know, the castle doctrine, everyone has the right to, to protect themselves and their family. There is therefore a right to bear arms in Canada now. That, that's not a far-fetched idea. It is, it is not a far-fetched idea if you had the right political culture to do it. I would be opposed to it because I think it's contrary to the original meaning of the charter. And so one of the things we try to, to demonstrate is that originalism is actually a lot more moderate politically than its competitors. It is, I don't believe any approach can be neutral, but it is more neutral in, in its ability to be applied consistently and predictably than things like the living tree. It does not lend itself as much to politicization. Whereas living tree, again, can go in a liberal or a conservative direction. And so I think what's, what's important to show law students and, and judges and scholars is that if we're going to have a legal system rooted in the rule of law, then we need to have something that if it's not originalist, it needs to at least have a home for that kind of thinking. It needs to be really uh, rooted to text and to doctrine uh, as opposed to ideas of what makes a good society. Uh, you, you mentioned politicization. Let me take up that point, Asher. It, it's often said in the Canadian media that our judiciary is less politicized than in the United States. What do you think of this characterization? Are our courts less politicized, or is it just that it's so dominated by one judicial perspective, it can seem like there isn't a contest of ideas? I think it depends on what we mean by the word politicized. The main difference between the Canadian and U.S. Supreme Courts is that the judicial philosophy of judges doesn't correspond here necessarily with the party that appointed them. Whereas in the United States, there, there is a huge overlap between if a judge has been appointed by the Republican Party versus the Democrats in terms of are they originalist, are they living constitutionalist, are they textualist, or are they uh, what we call uh, purposivist. Um, in Canada, I think it's much more difficult to predict a judge's judicial philosophy based on which party appointed them. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that, like many things uh, between Canada and the United States, 
and I'm not saying this to, to be a smug Canadian, but I do think we tend to be more moderate in, in our disposition than Americans do. And so we, we tend to be more agreeable and more moderate, and that can give uh, a, an impression of greater consensus, I think. So I, in the U.S., you, you really have, and, and Dobbs is a great uh, illustration of this, where when, there, when there's a disagreement, there is extremely strong, we'll say, strong language expressed about the other side's opinion that you just don't see in Canadian decisions. There's, there's at least a much greater appearance of consensus. Having said that, I do think that if, if you look at decisions of Canadian courts, there's no doubt that they are based on political beliefs. The, the notion that the living tree is not political is, is just completely uh, contradictory in my view. But, but the very essence of the living tree is to keep Canada up to date with current political values. And w- one of our former judges has said that it is the responsibility of the court to decide which which values in Canadian society triumph. You can cast it in that term, values, but values are political by definition. So there is no doubt that that our courts are political. And I don't believe courts can escape political issues when they are deciding questions that have almost a necessarily political aspect. You know, what is equality? What is discrimination? What What is expression? These are questions that almost demand some kind of political worldview to come to the fore. So I don't think they can be avoided. But that doesn't mean necessarily that the way our courts are political is exactly the same that, that the U.S. Supreme Court is political. So I, it, it's a bit of an equivocal answer, but uh, that's, that's my view on that. You know, it's worth observing with regards to your point about the tendency towards politicization um, of the living tree model that this is how a country can end up with a Rodriguez decision in the 90s saying that there's no constitutional right to assisted death and a decision in 2015 involving some of the same judges ruling that there is indeed a constitutional right to assisted death, even though the Constitution itself, of course, hasn't changed in the intervening time. Do you worry, Asher, that the Supreme Court's expansive interpretation of Section 7 in particular and its judicial activism more generally risks harming its credibility in the eyes of Canadians. I do, Sean. And that's one of the reasons why I founded, especially Advocates for the Rule of Law, but but also why I, I was so adamant about uh, co-founding the Running Meat Society, because I, I'm a big believer in, in the courts as an institution. I think the courts are essential to safeguarding the rule of law and therefore safeguarding our freedom, courts play an extremely important role, and therefore their credibility is of the utmost importance. And the reason that I co-founded these groups was not because I thought that the courts had lost credibility. If I thought the courts had lost credibility, that they weren't, they were no longer grounded to the rule of law, I, I think I would have just waved the white flag and said, you know, we're done. It's rather because I see the courts safeguarding the rule of law all the time, day to day, and because I believe they can continue to do it, but because I see that under threat, it needs to be protected. And so I do worry that if the court continues on that road, that it will begin to lose credibility in the eyes of Canadians, 
And in some cases, its credibility has been harmed already. You know, if you said to me, does the Supreme Court as an institution overall have credibility? I would say, yes, it does. And I think it's important for lawyers and legal scholars to, to say that. Because as soon as we, as soon as we say that the court has lost its credibility, that itself will undermine the court's credibility. We have a duty as lawyers and uh, legal scholars to boost the court's credibility, I think, to, to tell our fellow citizens how important the court is. But correspondingly, the duty on the court is to make sure that they do not stray from their role to interpret laws, that they do not get into the business of legislating. So, so I would say that maintaining ins- institutional credibility absolutely has to be a two-way street. And, and there are some decisions from the Supreme Court, and y- you alluded to the, the Carter decision, which is a good example of this, because there, there's no doubt that there was a, a change in values between those two decisions, where uh, in, in the initial decision in, in Rodriguez, you really see that sanctity of life is a very important value that, that the court is, is looking at to determine the reasonableness of, of the law. And then by 2015, personal autonomy, consent, these kinds of values have, have taken over. And, and the problem is that the court doesn't really engage enough with this change. The court doesn't explain why it is changing the doctrine. And the court doesn't appear too concerned with the fact of its original decision. It says we are going to change, we are going to change the law. And, and essentially the, the sense one gets is because times have changed. I think decisions like that do undermine the credibility of the court. And they also make it difficult as lawyers to, to advise our clients, to tell, to tell our clients how we think decisions are going to turn out because under the living tree, one never knows how, how the court is going to decide. And again, it could mean more, more rights, but it could mean fewer rights. You know, Professor Kerry Frock, uh, who I, I don't think she would fault me for saying this, is on the political left. She's an originalist. And one of her uh, arguments that she's made is that the living tree approach has often meant a narrowing of rights in the realm of equality. Now, I would disagree with her interpretation of what the original meaning of equality is, but that's a very legitimate take that she's put forward, that the original meaning of, of equality is X. And the court has actually narrowed that over time, especially as, as it pertains to equality between men and women. So we really need to be careful, both in terms of the court's credibility and, and also just in terms of a, having a practical legal system where people like me can advise our clients on, on what outcome they're likely to get if they go to court. Let me ask you a final question. I've, 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 you've been so generous with your time, Asher. For our listeners who been persuaded by your arguments, but who may not have the time or capacity to be an institution builder like you, how can they contribute to a, a kind of challenge to this prevailing judicial approach? In, in other words, how can we cultivate a, a, an intellectual and ultimately political alternative? Right. Well, th- that's a great question. And, and it's one that I don't believe I could sufficiently answer. But I will say this, that I've always believed that the best safeguard to the rule of law and to liberty is not judges, it's, it's not even parliament. It, and, and Justice David Stratus of the Federal Court of Appeal said this during one of our, our running me chats. It's, I, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but basically it's a well-informed and educated citizenry who's willing to stand up for fundamental 
rights, fundamental values. And, and I've made that same point in talks I've given that we need fundamentally, not just, uh, not just an educated bar, not just educated legal scholars. We need educated citizens who understand our constitution, who understand the nature of our legal system. Too many Canadians uh, have very Americanized understandings of our legal system because of what they see on TV. Too often when I'm talking to a client, I have to explain to them what our legal system even entails. You know, if, if we're doing an examination for discovery and they say, what's that? And I say, well, you probably have heard of depositions. Oh yeah, depositions. That's when I go in front of the camera. Well, we don't have cameras in Canada and they're called examinations for discovery. We, we need more education on the fundamentals of our legal system. And I think that means groups like Runnymede need to reach out to non-lawyers. You know, the Canadian Constitution Foundation did a uh, like a course on the Constitution. So I would recommend if you are a non-lawyer, take that course. I, I did one of the panels and I was accompanied by some of the best legal scholars in, in the country. So I was very flattered to be in, included in this group, but I was I was accompanied by some some really heavy hitters in this country. So if you want to learn about the Canadian Constitution, take that course. It's a great crash course in the Constitution. And just go to Runnymede events. We, we try to make things accessible to a non-legal audience. I, I think you, you can probably tell from this discussion, I always sort of assume that I'm speaking to, uh, let's say, an educated non-legal audience. I don't want to just speak to lawyers. I don't want to just speak to academics. I want to speak to people who aren't lawyers, but who are interested in this topic. It is not sorcery. It is not something that you need years and years of training to understand the basics of. That is something that some legal scholars might say, but the truth is that if, if you are smart and you are engaged, you can learn about this too, and you absolutely should because the responsibility lies with each of us to hold our institutions to account. Well, um, for those who want to understand the Canadian Constitution better, listening to this podcast is the first order of business. Asher Honickman, partner at the law firm Jordan Honickman, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues today to share your thoughtful insights and analysis. We're, we're grateful to have had the chance to speak with you. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.